Let's turn for our scripture reading to the book of Romans, and we'll begin reading at chapter 1, verse 16. Romans 1.16, we will read through chapter 2, verse 5, and the last two verses, which I will not reread, will be the text for the sermon, verses 4 and 5 of chapter 2. Romans 1, verse 16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation, to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness, because that which may be known of God is manifest in them, For God has showed it unto them, for the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because that when they knew God, they glorified him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of God, the glory of the uncorruptible God, into an image made like to corruptible man and to birds and four-footed beasts and creeping things. Wherefore God also gave them up to uncleanness through the lusts of their own hearts, to dishonor their own bodies between themselves, who changed the truth of God into a lie and worshiped and served the creature more than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this cause God gave them up unto vile affections, for even their women did change the natural use into that which is against nature. And likewise also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust one toward another, men with men, working that which is unseemly, and receiving in themselves that recompense of their error which was meet. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a reprobate mind to do those things which are not convenient being filled with all unrighteousness, fornication, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, debate, deceit, malignity, whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, despiteful, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, without understanding, covenant breakers, without natural affection, implacable, unmerciful, who knowing the judgment of God that they which commit such things are worthy of death, not only do the same, but have pleasure 
in them that do them. Therefore thou art inexcusable, O man, whosoever thou art, that judgest. For wherein thou judgest another, thou condemnest thyself. For thou that judgest, doest the same things. But we are sure that the judgment of God is according to truth against them which commit such things. And thinkest thou this, O man, that judgest them which do such things, and doest the same, that thou shalt escape the judgment of God? Now the text. Or despisest thou the riches of his goodness and forbearance and longsuffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance. But after thy hardness and impenitent heart, treasurest up unto thyself wrath against the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. This is the sacred and divinely inspired scripture. As announced, the text is Romans 2 verses 4 and 5. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, despising is a very strong word. If a little boy would say to his pious mother, I do not like you, well, that would be bad. If he would say to his mother, I hate you, well, that would be really bad. If he said to his mother, I despise you, that would be even worse. To despise is to take something and hold it down and hold it in contempt and view it as despicable so that you would say, get this thing out of here and get it as far away from me as possible. I despise it. And now the Scriptures all throughout warn us against despising God and the good things that He gives to us. For example, 2 Samuel 12, verse 10, God through the prophet Nathan told David what really was the essence of his adultery and his murder when he said, The sword shall never depart from thy house because thou hast despised me. Proverbs 3, verse 11 warns us against despising the chastening of God. That's not so pleasant, of course, when God comes and He chastens us with His heavy hand, but do not despise the chastening of the Lord, for whom the Lord loveth, He chasteneth. Proverbs 23, verse 22 speaks of despising your mother when she is old. So when your mother gets older, she's a little bit confused, she's a bit frail, she's slower, she's more forgetful, do not despise her. Matthew 18 verse 10 warns us against despising little ones by inflicting untold damage to them in body and soul. Do not despise little ones. 2 Peter 2 verse 10 says that false teachers despise government, presumptuous, 
are they self-willed? They are not afraid to speak evil of, that is, rail against dignities. And when the Apostle Peter, Peter speaks of false teachers despising government, don't think of President Biden or Governor Whitmer. You have to think of church government, ruling elders who have authority in the church. False teachers despise government. But the most convicting use of the term is certainly Isaiah 53 verse 3. He is despised and rejected of men. He was despised and we esteemed Him not. That's Jesus on the cross. And with our sin, we despised Him, took Him, held Him down, held Him in contempt, viewed Him as despicable, get Him away as far away as possible. We despised Him and esteemed Him not. There are many ways to sin against God by despising Him and His goodness as we see from Scripture, but the text that we consider tonight in our preparatory service will not point the finger at anyone else and all kinds of sinners out there, and there are lots of sinners, sinners everywhere, all throughout the world, but the Word of God comes right to you and right to me and points directly to us, to my heart, to your heart, despisest thou? Yeah, you. Me. Despisest thou the riches of His goodness? So let's consider this sharp word in our preparatory service and and in the service of the comforting Gospel of Jesus Christ, which is that in Jesus, who was despised, We have an atonement, and there is a covering for all of our very vile despising of God and His goodness. Romans 2, 4, and 5, we take as our theme despising God's goodness. Let's look first of all at the goodness of God, second, the despising of man, and third, the sharpness of the Word. Twice. Twice in the text, the Apostle speaks of goodness, verse 4, or despisest thou the riches of his goodness and forbearance and longsuffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance. The goodness of God here is God's good will to save sinners. That word can be translated kindness or loving kindness. In fact, it is in Ephesians 2, verse 7. That in the ages to come, He might show the exceeding riches of His grace in His kindness toward us. Or in His goodness toward us through Jesus Christ. So that God is not only absolute goodness in His own eternal being as the sum perfection of all His infinite perfections, but He has a good will. He has a favorable inclination toward elect sinners outside of Himself. And that's His goodness. Goodness, however, in the text is the general term. It's the big circle. And inside the big circle, the broad term of goodness are two particulars or two species of goodness. Two smaller circles. And they are, verse 4, Forbearance and long suffering, or despisest thou the riches of his goodness 
and forbearance and long-suffering. And the idea is, despisest thou the riches of His goodness, that is, now to speak more particularly, and His forbearance and long-suffering. So let's begin with God's forbearance. In theology, we typically make a distinction between forbearance and long-suffering. Forbearance applies to the reprobate. Long-suffering applies to the elect. What's interesting about this text is that it takes forbearance, it links it together with long-suffering, and makes it part of God's saving goodness to His people. Forbearance. Forbearance is the suspension of the full outpouring of the wrath of God upon the reprobate until what verse 5 calls the day of wrath. So in the last great day of wrath, God will pour out all of His wrath upon the reprobate and destroy them, but in the meantime, He forbears. That wrath hangs suspended. Now, of course, according to the Psalms, God is angry with the wicked every day. And God is visiting them with little drops, as it were, of temporal judgments. But the full outpouring of His wrath waits. Because the reprobate through history must fill up their cup of iniquity. They must manifest their full wickedness, and how much they really hate God. And they do that all through history. And that will ultimately be be manifested in the tyrannical rule of the Antichrist in the final world kingdom of the Antichrist. Then as never before, reprobate man will show just how wicked he is, and then will come the great day of wrath. But in the meantime, God forbears. He doesn't pour out all of His wrath yet. In this text, forbearance is God's goodness. His goodness to His people. So as God forbears with all of the reprobate, forbearance is, like all things, ultimately for the sake of the elect. God does not pour out all of His wrath upon the wicked right now, destroying them all and burning up the creation. Because of His elect. He must still work out His purposes in time with His elect. Many of the elect have not yet been born. The Gospel has not yet gone into every nook and cranny of the creation for the salvation of the elect. There are many elect people who must still be brought to saving faith in Jesus. So God forbears with the reprobate for the sake of the elect. You can see an example of that at the time of the flood when God announced judgment upon the whole wicked. I'll destroy the whole world. I'll destroy the world with a flood. And then He waited 120 years. Why? It was all for the sake of that elect Noah and his family that he might build that ark before the great Judgment came. Forbearance with the reprobate for the sake of God's elect. And that forbearance of God for the elect is grounded in the cross of Jesus. 
Why does He forbear with the reprobate for our sakes? Why does He not destroy the reprobate now? Why does He not destroy us right now? Because we are sinners too. There's already been a great day of wrath. It's the great day of wrath at Calvary. When God opened up the heavens and He poured out all of His wrath upon the sin-bearer, our substitute, the Lord Jesus Christ who is bearing our sins. He made an atonement. Now for His sake, God forbears with the reprobate for the sake of the elect. Forbearance is God's goodness to us. And, verse 4, long-suffering. The long-suffering of God refers to His mercy toward the elect in which He never grows weary with us as He leads us to final salvation. So just as there's this great day of wrath in the future for all of the reprobate, last day, there's a great day of salvation for all of the elect. But until that great day, We need God. We continually need God every moment of every day because we sin against God every day. We need Him to work repentance in us every day. We need Him to forgive us every day. We need Him to give us grace to withstand temptation every day. How many burdens do the people of God have? Look through the length and breadth of the earth. All God's saints. All these troubles and tribulations. We all need God's grace to sustain us in the hardships of life. We need God so badly. Moment by moment. We all do. His long-suffering is that He doesn't grow weary with us as He leads us unto final salvation. 2 Peter 3, verse 9, the Lord is not slack concerning His promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to us, word, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So that long-suffering God leads us, not willing that any of us should perish, leads us, keeps bringing us to repentance, leads us to final salvation. So behold, your great God of goodness, His forbearance, His long-suffering. And now in verse 4, the Apostle speaks of the riches of His goodness. Or, despisest thou the riches of His goodness and forbearance and long-suffering? The riches of God's goodness refers to all of God's saving blessings. So, goodness is The treasure chest of God's heart. God's heart is good. In that heart is forbearance, long-suffering. And then out of that heart come riches. And those riches are all the blessings of salvation. And the Apostle calls them riches, plural, because there are so many of them, more than the sand of the sea. Riches because for us to have them, they required the infinitely valuable death of Jesus. Riches because they're treasures. If you have these blessings of salvation, you are rich. You have joy and peace. Riches, they all come out of God's heart. God's decree of election. Riches, they all run through the cross of Jesus. Riches, they all come to us by the Word and Spirit. The riches of His goodness. One of them is mentioned. 
he leads thee to repentance. Or despisest thou the riches of his goodness and forbearance and longsuffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance. Repentance is a change of mind. That's what the word means. And it's the sinner's turn from his sin. So when the sinner, when the sinner repents, he has a change of mind so that now he thinks about his sin, he talks about his sin, he views his sin the way God in the Bible views his sin, talks about his sin, and thinks about his sin. So that within the sinner sorrows over his sin, he hates his sin, and he turns into the living God, believing by faith that God is a God of abundant pardon for Jesus' sake, and he cries out, God, be merciful to me, the sinner, for all my sins. And that change, that turning of the sinner away from his sin unto God, will be accompanied by all of the fruits of repentance, so that it will be unmistakable to everyone, he's changed. You can see it from the life he now lives. There's been a 180 degree change. Repentance. And then the life of repentance with all the fruits of repentance. Repentance is amazing. When I repent, when you repent, when you have a little child in the home and that child repents, when the consistory is working with a member of the congregation who's living in sin and that member repents, Repentance is amazing. It's worthy of hallelujahs. Our Lord said that when one sinner on the earth repents, the angels in heaven rejoice. It's amazing. What explains it? How could there be repentance? And how can there be repentance when by nature there's probably nothing that you and I despise more than repenting? don't want to repent. You don't want to repent. We hate repenting. We'll go to our grave fighting against God. Contending with God. You're wrong, God. And then everywhere we go, everyone we look at, you're all wrong. Consistory, you're wrong. Family, you're wrong. Father, mother, you're wrong. Husband, you're wrong. I'm not wrong. You're wrong. Wife, you're wrong. Teacher, teacher, you're wrong. I'm not wrong. You're wrong. I'm not wrong. I'm not owning up to anything. I'm not acknowledging anything. And there's no way I'm changing. You're to blame. You're wrong. I hate repenting. You hate repenting. We all hate repenting. And then by implication, I don't need Jesus, His blood and righteousness. I'm fine. I'm not changing. So how do you explain repentance when we all, by nature, hate to repent? The goodness of God. The goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance. However stubborn our will may be, God is stronger and God in His mercy sweetly bends our will. That's His goodness. Why does He forbear with the reprobate all through history? Because. 
He will lead his people to repentance. The Lord is not slack concerning his promises, as some men count slackness, but he's long suffering to us, we're not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. What's his forbearance toward us? Rather, his long suffering toward us, never growing weary of us? It's that he leads us to repentance over and over again. That is God's goodness. And he's such a good God that he leads us to repentance. Sometimes we get very angry. It's very easy for us to get frustrated when we're trying to work with someone who's living in sin and we want to get behind them, crack that whip, snarl, and get angry with them and try to drive them to repentance. And it doesn't work. God doesn't drive us to repentance. He goes before us. And He lays out all of His mercy and the sweet promises of His Gospel. And as He alone can do, He reaches back into our heart. And He sweetly changes our heart so that we repent. He leads us to repentance. That's His goodness. The goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance. Ah, the goodness, the riches of His goodness. If He were not a good God, no one in this auditorium tonight, including me, would ever repent and we would all go to hell. He's so good in His forbearance and long-suffering with all of His riches that He leads His people to repentance. The goodness of God. Now in contrast to that beautiful concept is the very spiritually ugly despising of man. And the main point of the Apostle is to put to man a question regarding God's goodness. Verse 4, Or despisest thou the riches of His goodness and forbearance and longsuffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance? Despisest thou that goodness? The Apostle is addressing the very proud, conceited, self-righteous judge who is always condemning other people for their sins while he's committing the same sins. Verses 1 and 2. Therefore thou art inexcusable, O man, whosoever thou art that judgest, for wherein thou judgest another, thou condemnest thyself. For thou that judgest doest the same things. But we are sure that the judgment of God is according to truth against them which commit such things. So this judge, who's the man of the text, is the one who keeps hammering away at other people for all their sins while he is actually committing the same sins. He can be anywhere. You can find him anywhere in the world. He might be a Jew, he might be a Gentile, but he is especially the one who sits under the preaching of the gospel. He goes to church. Because the apostle writes this letter called the Epistle to the Romans, and then he sends it to Rome, and it's read there in the company of the believers. And as it's being read, the apostle is speaking to them in Rome, and he says, Or despises thou 
He's not talking to all these sinners here, there, and everywhere throughout the world. He's talking about people who are sitting under the preaching of the gospel. Despisest thou the riches of his goodness? That, that proud judge could be you, it could be me. Now we are not that judge essentially as we are in Christ. This judge will go to hell. In the great day of wrath, he will perish. But I have an old man of sin who is that judge, and so do you. And when I'm not walking after the Spirit by the power of the Spirit, but I'm walking in the flesh according to my flesh, then I live just like that judge, that proud, conceited, self-righteous judge. And now in verse 3, the apostle is really asking, how do we explain you? Trying to figure you out. What is it? Is it this? Verse 3. And thinkest thou this, O man, that judgest them which do such things and doest the same, that thou shalt escape the judgment of God? Is that why you do what you do? Is that why you keep hammering away at other people for all their sins while you're doing the same thing? You think you will escape God's judgment? Or is it this? Verse 4. Or, despisest thou the riches of His goodness and forbearance and longsuffering. And it's both. Yes, you despise the goodness of God. That's your problem. Despising the goodness of God does not mean despising that goodness as it's effectually being communicated to the sinner to bring him to repentance. If God's goodness is pursuing you, and God's goodness is coming to lead you to repentance, you can't stop that. That goodness is going to come right into your heart. It's going to change you. It's going to bring you to repentance. And you are going to celebrate the goodness of God. The despising of that goodness of God is despising the truth of His goodness. It is despising the doctrine of His goodness. And it's carried out by someone who sits under the preaching of the Gospel in the church and he hears all about the riches of God's goodness, all about Jesus, His blood, His righteousness, all about the Gospel. And he despises that Word. Holds it down. Holds it in contempt. Views it as despicable. Don't talk to me about my need for righteousness. And get that as far away from me as possible. And now the, the Apostle asks, despisest thou the riches of His goodness? you despising the doctrine of God's goodness? And the answer is yes, that's exactly what you're doing. Verse 4, he continues, not knowing that the goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance? Again, with that statement, the Apostle is not referring to the goodness of God as a reality that is presently, subjectively being experienced. Goodness that's coming to this man right now. That's not what the Apostle means. He's referring to the goodness of God as an objective fact. A doctrinal fact. Not knowing that the goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance? 
Now the common interpretation of this text is the wrong one. And the common interpretation of this text inserts divine intention where there is none in that last statement in verse 4. It reads it this way, not knowing that the goodness of God is intending to, that the goodness of God is trying to, that the goodness of God wants to lead thee to repentance right now. And then the idea would be with that wrong interpretation, you proud self-righteous judge, God is trying to lead you to repentance. Why are you stopping Him? Why are you thwarting Him? With that interpretation, God extends goodness to all under the preaching, to the elect and to the reprobate alike. God is trying to lead everyone to repentance. But the reprobate stymie God. With that interpretation, God's grace is not particular. It's not particular to the elect alone. It's to the elect and the reprobate. With that interpretation, God's grace is not sovereign and effectual in the elect. But it's a weak and fallible, resistible grace that comes to all. And many reprobate are proud, self-righteous judges. God's trying to lead them to repentance. But He can't because they stymie Him. Don't you know that God is trying to lead you to repentance? Why are you stopping Him? That's the wrong interpretation of the text. That's the Arminian interpretation of the text. And that's the interpretation of the text that was given in the years surrounding 1924 when the Christian Reformed Church adopted the three points of common grace. The first point of common grace says that God has an attitude of favor towards all men. And when it was asked, where does the Bible teach that? The theologian said, Romans 2 verse 4. Read it. He's trying to lead all to repentance. The apostle does not say that God is intending. Don't you know that God is intending to lead thee to repentance? The apostle is not referring to goodness as a present reality that's being experienced right now. Goodness coming to you, trying to work in you. The Apostle is saying to any man, anywhere, no matter who he is, don't you know the truth? The objective, doctrinal truth of the goodness of God and that is the goodness of God that leadeth thee to repentance? Don't you know that truth? Now don't be thrown off by that personal pronoun, thee. Not knowing that the goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance? To use an illustration, suppose a man is leading a class teaching people how to scale Mount Everest. We're going to scale Mount Everest. Now before we even get on the mountain down here at the base camp, you all need to know a few things. One of the things you need to know is that high altitude leads to altitude sickness. So just be aware of that. You start climbing, you might feel dizzy, nauseous, get some headaches. High altitude leads to altitude sickness. Now if the teacher really wants to drive that home, make the point to everyone sitting at the tables, he would use the personal pronoun 
And instead of saying high altitude leads to altitude sickness, he would say high altitude leads you to altitude sickness. And he's not talking about a reality that's being experienced right now. That people are actually going up the mountain. They're actually experiencing high altitude. And they're getting sickness. That's not happening. They're all down at base camp. No one's touched the mountain yet. He's making a point. High altitude leads you to altitude sickness. And that's what the Apostle is doing here. He's declaring a doctrinal fact. Doesn't matter who you are, doesn't matter whether you are presently experiencing the goodness of God or whether you are not, here is an undeniable, incontrovertible fact. The goodness of God leads thee to repentance. That's a fact. And if you ever repent, here's the explanation it was the goodness of God that led you to repentance. Don't you know that? That's the point of the apostle. Don't you know that? And the answer to the question is, of course, you do. You don't experience God's goodness right now. Intellectually, you know the truth of it, that the goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance. Why do you despise that? You foolish judge, as you keep hammering away at everyone for all their sins, while you're committing the same sins, deep down what you're actually doing, you're basically saying, I don't need Jesus' blood and righteousness. And ultimately, you're despising the goodness of God, which leadeth thee to repentance. The despising of man. Now very briefly in verse 5, the Apostle will identify the cause and the result of this despising. And the cause is hardness and impenitence of heart. Verse 5, but after thy hardness and impenitent heart. That's why he does what he does. That's why he's despising God's goodness. He has a really hard heart. And he's impenitent. That's the cause. And the result is that he's treasuring. Verse 5, But after thy hardness and impenitent heart, treasurest up unto thyself wrath against the day of wrath and the revelation of the righteous judgment of God. So, On the last great day, there will be a day of wrath when God no longer forbears, but He pours out all of His wrath upon the reprobate. That day is also a day of revelation. It's the revelation of the righteous judgment of God. Now in history, ungodly men scoffs, sneers, makes all kinds of accusation against God. He's unfair, he's unjust, he's cruel, he's capricious. But you just wait. On that last day of wrath, that will also be the revelation of the righteous judgment of God when God shows as never before how righteous He really is and all of the damned will acknowledge He is just. Until then, 
this proud, self-righteous judge who's despising the goodness of God, who has a hard and impenitent heart, he's treasuring. All that wrath of God is like a great body of water being held back by the dam of God's forbearance until God takes that dam away at the end. All the water comes roaring out to destroy body of water. And every day, this hard and penitent sinner, he's treasuring against that day of wrath. He's adding to that body of water by all his sins, treasuring up wrath. And that body keeps building and building and building until finally in the great day of wrath, just like in the day of the flood, it all comes out. The despising of man. A very solemn concept. Now deliberately, this text with the goodness of God and with the despising of man is put by the Apostle in the form of a sharp question that is addressed to any man whosoever he is. Listen is a really, really sharp word. Or despisest thou the riches of his goodness? And you can almost picture the apostle locking eyes, looking right at a man, pointing his finger right at a man, a particular singular man. Or despisest thou the riches of his goodness? That's a really sharp word. The word of God is sharp. Hebrews 4 verse 12 For the Word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and the marrow and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. The Word of God is not only sharp in its external form, it's sharp as the Spirit takes it and, and cuts right into the heart of the sinner. This word has an effect upon the reprobate. The reprobate has a hard and penitent heart. And the effect of this word is that it agitates the reprobate. Don't don't be telling me that I'm a sinner and I need to change and repent and I need Jesus and His righteousness and God is angry with me. It agitates him and his hard heart becomes even harder as the Spirit hardens him. But that sharp word is used by the Spirit to work salvation in His elect people. Now you might know a sinner who's really hard in his heart right now, but we don't know if he's reprobate. We don't know who's reprobate. He actually may be elect. And over the course of time, God will bring him to repentance. But so long as one continues in impenitence all the way to the end, that sharp word of the Spirit is only going to agitate him, make him harder. But God does use this sharp word for the salvation of His elect people. You and me. Are you despising the goodness of God? And that's the question of the text for us in this week of self-examination. Before we gather at the table of the Lord, are you despising God's goodness? What does that look like? It looks like this. You 
You really don't take your own sins seriously, but you're always condemning other people for their sins, even though you do the same thing. The apostle is saying, You are the judge. When you get all worked up about someone violating, let's say, the seventh commandment, and you're talking to everyone everywhere, and all this gossip, and you're aghast and heaping condemnation upon so and so for violating the seventh commandment, and guess what? You're the one looking at pornography every night. That's the apostle's sharp word. The apostle is saying, you're the judge. When you keep talking about this other family and condemning them because of what they let their children watch. And maybe what they watch is bad. Always condemning that other family. Those other families in church for what they let their children watch. Guess what? Your kids never know their catechism. Do you know that? They never know their catechism. And here you're hammering away at this other family in church, and your kids don't know their catechism. That's the point of the apostle. Who are you? Who do you think you are? You proud, conceited, self-righteous judge. You go to the end of Romans chapter 1 with the longest catalog of sin in the whole Bible, and you start affixing these labels to all these different people in church, but you're doing the same thing. Despisest thou the goodness of God? And if we are, that sharp word comes at us this week and says, Who art thou, O man? It is sharp. And it's rooted in the Gospel to convict us of our sin and to bring us to repentance and sweet reliance upon the loving kindness of God. So do you repent? Is your heart softened? Do you put your trust in Jesus? If you do, you are really, really rich tonight. The riches of His goodness, He has led you to repentance. What a wonderful thing as only God's goodness can do. What goodness? Only a forbearing and long-suffering God would keep leading us to repentance all the way to glory. You know what I would do and you would do if we were the exalted, thrice holy, infinitely glorious, transcendent God of majesty, great God in heaven. If I were God, you were God. And some puny little sinner on earth was despising our goodness. I would damn him and so would you and cast him into hell by the end of the day. How dare you despise me? Look at the riches of his goodness, forbearance and long-suffering. He keeps leading us to repentance, not willing that any of us should perish, his people, but that we should all be brought to repentance. He's such a good God. And the basis for that goodness being showered out upon you is the Lord Jesus Christ who at the great day of wrath on that tree 
on the hill called Golgotha receive the full outpouring of God's wrath for all our sin, including our despising of God's goodness. He was punished that we might never be punished of God. And for Jesus' sake, God is good to us and keeps leading us to repentance. Oh, the goodness of God. And you will see the elements of that on the table next week, Sunday morning. He's such a good God. Praise be to Him. Psalm 31, verse 19 in conclusion. Oh, how great is Thy goodness, which Thou hast laid up for them that fear Thee, which Thou hast wrought for them that trust in Thee before the sons of men. Amen. Let us pray. Father, we thank and praise Thee for Thy goodness, and Thy goodness includes a sharp, convicting word that we all need to hear. So we humble ourselves before Thee, and may we go home and through this week confess our sins and the curse due to us for all those sins. And lead us in mercy to the cross of our Savior, and show us Thy abundant goodness. For Jesus' sake, Amen.